Welcome to the Just Culture Podcast. I'm Mary Jane. On this show, we are dedicated to creating a safe and just healthcare system. It's no secret to the public that the healthcare system is in a crisis. Nurses and doctors are being asked to take care of sicker patients than we've ever had before with less resources and hospitals are operating under a critical staffing shortage. Some hospitals don't even have the staff to stay open, let alone be profitable and care for their communities. This needs to stop. On this show, we are going to have the difficult conversations, take a look at where we're at, and also come up with solutions on how to fix this. Where do we go from here? How do we take care of our caregivers? How do we give our patients the best care? Those are the questions that we are interested in answering here each and every week. Hello, and welcome to the Just Culture Podcast with me, Mary Jane Duquette. Um, So we are still in our end of year series where we're reviewing our top five podcasts of the year coming up on our first year anniversary. I'm so excited. Um, Thank you so much for sticking with me and helping um, make this all possible. This week, we are looking at my number four ranked episode that you all love so much. And this is my interview with attorney Jack Cook from one of the nation's largest law firms, um, Morgan & Morgan. Now, we dive into conversations about personal injury and medical malpractice and really dive into a lot of the legal processes of it. Uh, so if you're interested, uh, def, you know, a lot of people are interested in listening to that, but also what's a nurse's role? Um, I know we hear a lot of buzz about legal nurse consultants and really how can they help? What is the power of having a nurse? Um, we've talked about the power of having a nurse in other cases, but like how, what can having a nurse work with an attorney really do? Um, for me, it's the knowledge that we bring, right? And we can keep um, keep attorneys on the right track, whether you're defense or plaintiff, it does not matter. Facts are facts, medical jargons, medical jargon, um, cases are cases. What matters is that you are helping and educate and inform the attorney on any of the missing pieces of information that they need. They might know to look to see, did this doctor cut off the wrong leg? But then do they know how to look to see how was leadership staffing staffing the OR? What are the processes that are helping prevent the attorney from, I mean, the, the surgeon from cutting off the wrong leg? Does the hospital have any practice policies, procedures? Should they? What's the standard of care? Um, what was staffing like that day? How does staffing impact the way a surgeon can operate in the operating room? All of those bring into really higher level things that go beyond the surgeon. It goes, brings into the whole entire system and the systemic air issues. And that's something that only somebody inside would know. And so without further ado, let's dive into the episode and I hope you enjoy. Thank you for meeting with me today. And um, I want to start by saying that, so I was reading through the information that you sent me, and I'm sitting here in front of a renowned lawyer with Morgan and Morgan, but really at the heart of it, I'm sitting here in front of sort of a Renaissance man. So do you want to give us a quick introduction to all that is Jack Cook? Sure. Um, first of all, it's, it's such a pleasure to be here, and uh, I, I appreciate the invite. Um, I, I have a unique background, and it's kind of something that I try to keep in my foreground as much as possible, but uh, it really kind of just comes from a, a, a diversity of different uh, things that I tried in my life. Um, growing up, uh, I grew up in a magic shop. My family owned a magic shop, something my father started in the early 60s in Philadelphia and parlayed into a career and a business and one that grew and was one of the first magic shops to be on the internet and have a website and everything. So it grew to be one of the largest in the world and uh, sold that business after 60 some odd years of being in business. And that kind of had me being raised in that small business, you know, environment and atmosphere and certainly the magic. I, I traveled the country a lot in my youth uh, performing magic here and there and everywhere. And before the internet, 
if you manufactured anything and wanted to sell it, you could either put, publish a catalog, which we did, or you had to hit the road and kind of take your product and show it to people at different trade shows and whatnot. So that's kind of how I spent a lot of my youth. Um, I, I was an athlete in high school, but I also was very much involved in the arts. I loved uh, singing and dancing and acting and had been performing my whole life. Graduating from high school, I tried to make that into a career in my first foray into college, but then took a complete 180 and enlisted in the Marine Corps. Um, I've always had a deep pride in my country and the, the, the want and desire to serve my country. So I, uh, rather than wait to become an officer, I went ahead and just said, I want to kind of get over now. And in the uh, mid nineties, I joined the Marines and I stayed in there until uh, around 2002. So my active duty time was up. I came out of the Marines and which I really enjoyed my time there, got to see over 40 different countries and just get exposed to a lot of you know, great people and serve with some of the, 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 the bravest slash craziest slash most resourceful people I've ever had the pleasure of encountering. Um, and you can't serve in that kind of capacity without it just completely changing your life and your heart and your passion. And so that led me to becoming a public school teacher and a coach where I kind of helped other young men develop and put a lot of them in the military, but also helped a lot of them go to college and coached football and wrestling and lacrosse. And, and while I enjoyed teaching immensely, I got uh, pulled into the law um, by my current wife, who at the time was just a girl I was dating, who ironically was someone that we grew up doing theater together, but she ended up in the legal industry. And so um, we got together and uh, she was working at a law firm and I started working at that law firm as an investigator just, um, you know, at the very front of doing this type of stuff, this personal injury, and getting to talk to people who are injured in car accidents and falls and workers' compensation and medical negligence and, and other things. And, you know, really kind of, it was a bit of an eye-opening experience for me. My own beliefs and the way I grew up, I used to even tease my wife that, that you know, she was an ambulance chaser and I used to you know, tease at cocktail parties that there wasn't an ambulance my wife couldn't keep up with. And, and, uh, and while that's derogatory, and, and certainly there are lawyers out there that, you know, I believe hear those sirens and get excited about them. I don't think it's anybody that does what, what you know, I, I'm involved in doing and which touches, you know, in the medical side of things, because as we all know, bad outcomes, nobody wants those to happen. Nobody, you know, really wants that to be the result. But, you know, I digress. I, I, I was, it was eye-opening to me because people were really, really hurt and really affected and really injured. And it just didn't seem like the system was one in which it was making it very easy for those people to get to the help that they deserved. So it, it woke something up inside of me. And I found an appreciation for it. And I also, well, I found that it was very analytical. So I ended up stopped teaching, going to law school. And that um, turned into uh, me doing uh, medical malpractice defense at first. I knew a lot of people in the healthcare industry. I used to work and do transactional healthcare law, started defending a couple of these malpractice suits, really enjoyed the, the medicine, the risk management part of it, the kind of getting the root cause analysis part of it and um, eventually started taking cases on the other side on behalf of patients. Those are mostly birth injury cases. And I was, I was uh, privileged to mentor under a very good uh, birth injury attorney, uh, Maria Theodore, who um, was someone that, that uh, came up and made her bones doing birth injury. So some odd years ago, I had a chance to work with her on birth injury cases kind of across the country and got developed a, a, a real passion for obstetrics and a real passion for that area of law. Well, I've gone back and forth. Sometimes I've been on the defense side. I'm currently a partner with Morgan & Morgan. They're the largest consumer and you know patient protection firm in the country. So um, I do my work on behalf of what I say the, are the plaintiffs and the patients, but my passion for this work is really in the fact that we are serving this animal that just helps keep healthcare great in this country. And it just helps keep healthcare great in my state and in my neighborhood. I mean, these are the doctors, these are the hospitals I send my family and friends to, you know, and uh, I think it's important that it stays as good as it is. And that means helping doctors and nurses realize that mistakes are made sometimes, which will help make them a better provider. And, and then the system also works to weed out some people who might 
not belong in, in what we believe is the modern feel and take of medicine in this balanced approach between it being a business and it being, you know, something that's very central to safety. But alas, I have maintained all of those breadcrumbs I've brought from my military service, from being in the theater, from being in the arts. I've kind of kept all that alive. Um, I still perform. I still sing with a couple bands. I um, still do the occasional, um, you know, uh, traditional show. Um, I still, uh, uh, you know, coach kids whenever I can. Lately, I, I coach my kids, uh, you know, little league games. Um, still get out to to perform very often. Still do a lot of stuff in in joint with the veterans groups, and uh, you know, ride a Harley. So do a lot for for motorcycle and advocating for motorcyclists and their rights. And uh, just, you know, as you said before, trying to stay that that modern, you know, renaissance man. I always call it the warrior poet. And as I remind my my uh, my son that even the most ferocious warriors back in medieval times were expected to know all the dances and know how to play an instrument and know how to sing. And all of that is what helped build their stock besides just, you know, lopping off heads and seizing castles and all that fun stuff. So that's that's it in, in a gist. I kind of consider it a jack of all trades, master of none. Enough people have told me not to quit my day job that I have not. So here we are. Great <laughs> day job. Oh man. Well, first of all, thank you for your service in the Marines. Um, I really do appreciate that. My dad is still in the National Guard. Um, wow. So I um yeah, he's doing um he's in the reserves now, but he just he just can't step away. <laughs> I you know what I, I can really, really, really appreciate that. And I have so much respect for people that stayed in longer than I did because you know, they always used to say that you don't have to feel guilty about getting out early, you know, after only four years or after only eight years or, you know, in my case, I got out in six years, you know, it, but it's hard not to. But at the same time, it, you know, it, 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 it's a different type of respect that goes both ways. We respect that they're able to stay as long as they are and, and develop into just immense war fighters. I mean, obviously, they reach a point where it's about leading other men and women and passing those things down so you you see incredible people and a lot of my buddies i saw develop into that get shoot up the ranks and some of them shoot way up the ranks it was exciting to see and at the same time there's a respect for people like us who are just taking a little brief time out of our formidable and prime years to loan those to our country and then getting back to being that that what we used to call a nasty civilian <laughs> see civilian uh, but yeah uh, it just makes you a better person um, yeah I enjoy my time in service very very much and a, a lot of respect and admiration to anyone who uh, who served and you know you find that anyone that got their medical or nursing background in the medical service is a corpsman you know army air service you know flight surgeons those sorts of things those guys tend to be very very sharp practitioners you know so I think that's a great training ground for people that do medical. Yeah. Yeah. I've worked with a few. Um, so um, I was going to ask you, you said that you, um, so in legal work, you started out as an investigator. So kind of doing more behind the scenes stuff around personal injury. And then you went to defense or kind of medical malpractice and then transition to plaintiff. Do you notice, um, so if I do, I do legal nurse consulting work, I don't see a huge difference if I'm working, if I'm plaintiff or defense, but what is, um, what do you like about each side? Since you said you go back, back and forth. You know, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, first of all, I, I have a lot of respect for anyone that does the type of law that I do. And I feel like we as lawyers that do probably have more mutual respect for each other than some other very sort of butthead parts of the job, auto accidents and whatnot. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, there's a recognition on our part no matter how heinous the standard of care is, 99% of the times you're you're dealing with good doctors, good nurses, just making mistakes. You know, they they got into this business to help people, to save lives, to to make a difference, and you know, and they do their job the way that they do it and the way that they know best to do it. 
Sometimes that gives them a good bedside manner. Sometimes it does not give them a good bedside manner. What's important is that they're good at their craft. So, you know, the differences between side and side really has a lot to do with just how you're looking and approaching a case. On the defense side, you're conscripted into it, really, because what choice do you have? You know, your, your client is being sued. And, you know, and if it's through an insurance company, you're an attorney they trust. You know, that's what they they have a contract with this doctor that says, look, if you get in a pickle, one of our strengths is, is we're picking good lawyers for you, not lawyers that are going to string this case out into the into eternity just to make a buck or two, but not attorneys that are going to roll over, but attorneys that are going to force these other guys to meet their burden of proof. And that's really the way to look at it from the defense's standpoint. And, you know, we, it's, it's not the same as criminal. I remember when I was a law student, this criminal defense attorney came and spoke to us and just knocked people off their stool with what was a shock value opening statement, which was, hi, my name is Mr. So-and-so, and I defend child rapists, and I am proud of it. And everyone was like, what? Like, That's okay. Funny. There's got to be something after that, right? Some people stayed to listen and find out. And what he said was, it's my job to keep innocent people out of prison. That's my job. Okay. I'm not saying it's my client that's innocent. Heck, most of the time they're not. But it is my job to make sure the state meets their burden of proof that they go through all of the motions jump through all of the hoops. So no matter how much it seems like common sense would just allow us to skip over these three dots, no, we're gonna hit each one of these dots to leave that stone unturned, no, no leaf unturned, so that you can get to that beyond a reasonable doubt. And he said, that's what he explained. It's my job to make sure they meet their burden. And if they don't, then you shouldn't convict because that's what's going to protect the innocent man. And that parlays over into what you do on the defense side. It's our job to present a defense of the case. Now, why it's easier on both sides is because you're dealing with a very minimal burden of proof. And it's interesting how each side addresses that. When I was on the defense side, plaintiff's lawyers used to like to come into court and say, look, all we have to do is tilt the scales of justice just like this. Look, that's it. And we win. 51%, more likely than not, greater weight of the evidence, call it what you want. But all I got to do is go, and we win. See how easy that is, folks? But as a defense lawyer, I'd come up and say, well, what they didn't tell you was their side of the scale is completely and totally empty. And long before they can tip it, folks, they got to get it to even. They're not going to be able to do that, right? Or the plaintiff's approach, which is, hey, 500 sheets on this side, 500 sheets of paper on that side. I take one and move it over, you've met your burden of proof. Now, it's important for you to know those things as a nurse consultant too, and for experts to know those things because a lot of times that burden of proof is lower than what would be diagnostic criteria. You probably wouldn't firmly diagnose someone with, well, more likely than not, it's this. I mean, that's probably what would sit on the top of your differential. And that's kind of when I explain that to some experts, that's what I say is, is that the top of some of those are, um, you know, the, the, the top of those differentials is typically what I would say constitutes an opinion that more likely than not, that's what this is, as opposed to being able to work your way through your, your differential, rule things out, rule things out, and then you're left with something that you're pretty strongly convinced and you're saying that's what I'm diagnosing. That's probably a little closer towards what is a higher burden of proof, which is clear and convincing evidence. Criminal law, that burden of proof is beyond a reasonable doubt. That's very hard to meet. That's like 99%. So it's a very minimal burden. So approaching that burden from either side, there's a little bit of difference with how it's approached. Other than that, honestly, if the lawyers are practicing this stuff the way that they should, then they're looking at the evidence and the approach is the same. If the evidence, and, and, and this is why we rely so much on nurse consultants like yourself and also the medical experts that get involved in testifying these cases, because we cannot move forward on a case without expert support.
every state requires expert support. My state, Florida, where I primarily practice, requires that before you even get started, before you even put the other side on notice. You have to do an investigation and get the experts on board. They don't need to know everything, but they need to say there's a reasonable basis. This one is worth looking at further and going through the discovery process. And in those instances, if that discovery process helps solidify that there's been a breach and that it caused injury, the experts will say, my suspicions were correct in that. Sometimes the discovery comes back showing, no, there's questions, but they're answered and those answers are acceptable and point to reasonable care, in which case the expert will say, I can no longer support your case. And if you can't find someone else that can, you might be able to, it's science, then you cannot move forward on this case. So the system works in that regard, probably better than any other area of law by really relying on your community to help tell us what are cases and what are not cases. Yes. Oh, I agree with that so much. And I, I wish more attorneys would. Some, sometimes they want to just look at the expert opinion, right? So an expert comes in and maybe it's, it's an orthopedic case and they'll look at the things around the orthopedic, but there's a lot of questions I find when I do, especially behind the scenes work, there's a lot of questions that you don't know to answer and maybe that orthopedic expert might not even look at right or even be on their radar to ask so i find it really helpful um, to look at cases so if i'm looking at a case say like a nurse or a doctor and i'm behind the scenes um and you're looking at a case you're looking at it as okay so this is what happened at face value this is what it looks like happened so then I approach it as, so what happens if that wasn't the case? How can I, how can I explain this away some other way? And you look at everything and ask for more materials to see if you can kind of look at it so that you're um, finding kind of the reason why. And I think that's why I started this podcast because I feel like not enough people are kind of asking why. So, okay, this, patient fell. We'll just use like a basic example. Um, but why did that patient fall? You know, you could go through the records and say, well, because this one thing wasn't done, right? That's your, that's your 51%, right? They didn't document this one thing. But then if you bring it out further, you're looking at how is staffing? How was all this? How was staffing? Were there any emergencies on the unit? Because if there's a code and it's an initial thing, everybody's running to that. That's not something that on the outside you really can kind of see. Um, have you had any cases where that's kind of played a role for you that like stand out? I mean, there's a lot of cases that fit the mold of what you just said. And I would put it in the category of the majority of cases and what what you are suggesting and your thought process is very advanced and very, very good because, and, and you're 100% right. And I mean this with all sincerity, because I talk to a lot of nurse consultants and I, I, I try to help the industry by, and that's one of the reasons I do some of these podcasts is to kind of let you know what we need and what we don't need and what, you know, is, is more cost efficient than less. But what you just went through is exactly what we need. You know, people like me know the medicine pretty good by now. I mean, you do it enough, read enough scholarly articles, spend enough time on up to date, right? Take enough depositions. I always joke when people are pregnant, I always say, you should let me deliver your baby. And I would say, I have no <laughs> idea how to do it, but I know about a thousand ways how not to do it. So I'll just I won't do any of that stuff and we should be fine, right? <laughs> so, right? But, but it's the truth. I, I know, I, I, I probably can, I probably know just about as much about obstetrics as a lot of, you know, board certified obstetricians. It's knowledge and it's attainable. Do I have the bedside experience? Absolutely not. And that's a huge gap in knowledge, especially in, in, in a thing like obstetrics. And I have a full respect for the fact that I do not have that clinical experience. But I also know the power of the pen 
and in this case, the power of the keyboard. And just like that old saying, the winners write the history. So what I see in these medical records sometimes are nervous doctors, scared nurses, concerned. Are they concerned about this patient and the complication that just came up? Yes, but there's also concern about making sure it doesn't look like that we dropped the ball. And, you know, it, it brings into play, you know, questionable care, but it also requires you to widen the scope and say, what else can explain the why? And that's some of the things that you went into about staffing policies, you know, who was where, when, that those are the things that really put the extra meat on the bone that is necessary to make a case because you can have those holes in your evidence, but the jury's always going to ask themselves, how did this happen? Why was this allowed to happen? And you've got to get them over the disbelief that stuff like this doesn't happen. The good news is, and it's not good news, but the news is people right now distrust healthcare. It took a black eye through COVID unfairly, but that's the media. That's the world we live in nowadays. There's nothing goes blameless anymore. You got to find someone to say, this is where the blame lies. So there's a distrust in healthcare right now as people have seen great doctors completely reverse their position and some of the best doctors in the world disagreeing with each other. And then also medicine becoming political. The one thing that everyone thought, thought, everyone on the outside of this industry thought was divorced from politics, that curtain came down. And now people realize, wow, that is a thing. And then you've had some whistleblowing cases and these, these things make news. And there's always this concern about the availability of quality healthcare and, and, and the desire to, to make that uniform for all. So, and whether or not that's possible with, with available resources or what changes need to be made. So it's all in the forefront of it, but people need to understand how and why these things happen. To understand that, look, you had a, I'll give you a classic example of a case I'm going to trial on soon. I've got a patient who comes into the hospital and he weighs full, almost 500 pounds. And He's kind of, he's in the ER and 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 there's a there's a bad handoff that occurs between the ER team and the internal medicine team. And that results in him sitting in the ER for hours as an already admitted patient, but not with the proper monitoring. And he ends up going hypercapnic and you know, respiratory depression to the point he has to be emergently intubated, aspirates and dies during that you know, dies a few days later from an anoxic brain injury. And, um, and the, the, why is this all so believable that this happened? Because of the way the whole setup was. This was, this handoff happened right before shift change. And it happened at a time where if this H&P is done that early, another doctor won't come see him for hours because they'll see He's already had the H&P, but it's being done by an offgoing doctor who's not identifying some things that should be identified as to why we need to keep a closer eye on this patient, you know? So the how and the why those things happened, those are important. And, and that's where you're getting to the bottom of things like staffing and policies and what's in the EMR and when things were entered, when they were entered. But the one thing that any good nurse consultant and any expert needs to do is they need to consider the records. They need to consider the records strongly, but they also need to consider what is not in those records mm. and pick up on some obvious things. Why is this entry a day late? Why wouldn't this be contemporaneous charting? Because it reflects obvious conversation with someone who said, you need to go back and make this clear. And I'm not trying to say that is nefarious. A late entry is allowed. Heck, I only know it's a late entry because they did it and it shows me when it was entered. It'll show the service time, but it'll show the enter time and the sign time. So that just creates another question. 
And that's what we rely very heavily on nurse consultants to do. And not just simply issue spot what the medical and nursing issues are. It's an advanced level of it. And I think with the right a la carte package of that, it's, it'll see nurse consultants being asked to attend depositions, to listen in on testimony, to help piece together the puzzle more than just being there early in the case to identify where the deviations are. Yes, yes, I love that, especially helping with deposition questions and things like that sort of help know what to ask. Um, there's a lot of things, even in that case, what you said, you know, um, I just did a Tales from the Trenches, which is where I take nurses or healthcare workers and they tell me their story and I tell it just so that there's a risk if they speak up for them to lose their job or, um, and then HIPAA, of course. But this nurse was saying she was brand new and she was in the emergency department working and she had a, the standard for her ratios was four patients to one nurse. And it was regardless of their acuity. It was just four bodies, one nurse. Um, and that's really not safe of, of a policy at all. But then the hospital took it further and said, we don't want our patients waiting in the waiting room because they're unhappy on their surveys. And they said, we're gonna get patients off the waiting room. We're putting patients in the hallway. We're doing this. So then they went up to a one nurse to eight patient and that's one nurse to eight bodies. So it didn't matter if it was just somebody with a cold, somebody with a fractured arm, somebody having a bedside procedure, which is one-to-one, -one, they would have seven other people. So um, there's all of these kind of things. And that's kind of like the unspoken, unspoken truths. So I've, I speak up because I just can't not. I've always been that way as a nurse. Um, but a lot of people are really afraid to because they'll they'll lose their jobs. Um, but there's lots of different things like looking at the actual staffing. Uh, you know, the charge nurses usually have like a book that say what the staffing was and and you can look at, you know, the ratios or how many patients were there um, really plays a huge role mm -hmm. into it. Um, I did... I pulled some research and it said that every patient a nurse had increases the risk of injury or harm. And then this, this hospital was like, I want to have the best reviews. So we're just going to get people out of the waiting room, overload the staff. And, you know, so maybe that doctor who knows could have been dealing with a mess of, of patients. Um, no excuse, but also that takes it up, you know, the responsibility Kind of like on a broader aspect, right? Is my, am I thinking the right way here? <laughs> no, no, you're 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 absolutely nailing it. And you know, it it makes me makes me think. And there's you know there's a lot of very passionate nurse consultants out there, and I love it because they're ones that really 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 have the interest in this because of promoting a just culture because of of you know of of being that patient advocate i mean it's ingrained in all nurses it really is painful to me when i depose a nurse and i do that a lot when i i have to pry out of a nurse that she's a patient advocate like that is something that's going to get you in trouble no i mean could it get a nurse saying that they felt you didn't advocate adequately? Yes. But does that make you any less of a patient advocate? No. One of the things about it is knowing when to advocate for a patient. You can't be this loudmouthed nurse that, that questions every doctor's instruction and is running to the charge nurse every five seconds. I mean, they're going to tell you go to medical school and then you won't <laughs> have to deal with that anymore, you know? But you, you talk to nurses about being that advocate and invoking that chain of command and initiating a nursing challenge. And you get a couple answers that are deeply disturbing. You get people answering that, yes, they know about it. Yes, they've been trained by their very hospital that that system is in existence, that they realize that it is an available modality for them. You have them admit that if, in the rare instances that they've used it or have heard of other people using it, that it has forced a reversal of the doctor's decision, that it has had the attending 
make a different determination, that it has resulted in a C-section that the nurse felt was adequate, that it has resulted in a patient's discharge being halted because a nurse felt it was necessary. And then you hear them say, they've never done it in their entire career, ever. Yeah, That's yeah, it's- It's a feeling because we, what we do for a living, you and me both, has to be done from a springboard of understanding that healthcare is not infallible, that it is hard to be a doctor. It is hard to be a nurse. It is hard to run a surgery center. It is hard to run and operate a hospital. Let's recognize how hard it is, okay? Probably why there's so much money around it because of how hard it is. But it's also the thing that is targeted at what is most precious to all of us, our life, our health, new life, end of life. Every, every bit of our life we start with a doctor from minute one. Heck, we start with a doctor at minus nine and a half months. And most of us leave with a doctor. So it's end-to-end healthcare at every aspect of your life. So, you know, it's complex and it's complicated, but it is not infallible. Let's just pretend like every other industry that is 10% of the people causing 90% of the problems. And that's what you see a lot. But in most instances, I'm dealing with a good doctor or a good nurse who made a mistake, which they are allowed and entitled to do. It will not cost them their license in most instances. It will not irreparably damage their career. What it will do is probably save a life because they'll look again, they'll look twice. And that saves lives and saves limbs and saves babies every day. Oh my gosh. And that's why I like doing this legal part because I have this vision where, so every time I'm reviewing a case, I'm looking at it and I'm picking out the places where healthcare sort of, you know, went, went, went awry in that situation. And I don't feel like enough times people are looking at this stuff and hospitals do have risk management and they look at, you know, you'll fill out an incident report. They'll look at the incident reports and, but they're looking at it through the lens of how do I minimize liability? No, you need to take it bigger. You need to look at it the lens on how can I make sure this never happens again? You know, you see these like big cases and I've covered a couple of them um, where it really was a bad nurse in these instances that were hurting people. And there were always, they don't get caught until they're like four or five patients in. And the thing is, is, this stuff kind of, if we're not looking at it and we're not looking at why it happened and then asking the bigger why, we can't fix it. And once it comes to us in this field, it's kind of too late, right? Yeah, I mean, that's it's an excellent point. And it's, you know, there's so much wrapped around that that makes sense and yet doesn't make sense, you know? It's interesting because it's kind of like you have this corrective process in the law. We call it a subsequent remedial measure. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. You've ever heard of that subsequent remedial measure? No. So let me give you an example. There's a a hole in the parking lot of a grocery store, a chain. And the hole don't belong there. It's a defect. Okay, it's a break in the concrete. It doesn't belong there. So someone falls in it and breaks their leg. But they're going to defend it and say, number one, it wasn't that deep of a hole. It was just a small crack in the concrete, that div- a divot. And it was very open and obvious to everybody. So you only would fall in it if you weren't paying attention yourself. But at the same time, they're going to fix it. So they fix the hole. It's no longer there. Okay. You're not allowed to argue in court in most jurisdictions. You're not even allowed to introduce the fact that they fixed it. Because you cannot use that as the evidence that, ah, you see, they knew it didn't belong there because guess what, folks? They fixed it. 
think how easy it would be to win on that, right? Because if I was allowed to argue that, they wouldn't fix it. They'd let it sit. And then someone else would get hurt, right? Mm. So the infinite wisdom of the law is there's a greater good, there's a public interest in keeping that fact out of the case because we want them to fix the whole and have it not be held against them. Now, if they said, what hole? <laughs> then you could introduce it, right? <laughs> or if they said, that's not our hole, and you have the bill showing, well, you you paid to fix it, then you could introduce it. But it'll be introduced with a very specific instruction that says that is not being introduced as evidence that that was a dangerous defect. That is only being introduced to establish that it was their problem, right? That they owned it, right? Yeah. Talk about how that plays out in the medical setting because it's the same logic. We want hospitals to do peer review. We want them to investigate. We want them to do root cause analysis. We want them to come up with conclusions and put those in incident reports. And a lot of them do. And all of that stuff cannot be introduced at trial. Some states not even discoverable. In our state, still up in debate. Sometimes you get it. Sometimes if they say, hey, we participate in the voluntary federal safety, blah, 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 we're protected by federal law, which says we don't have to give over any of this. So people, you know, it's a harrowing thing to think that a hospital could know that they messed up, that their doctors messed up, that their nurses messed up, but they have no obligation to tell you about it unless you were to raise an inquiry or do something about it. If you want, if you raise the inquiry, then yeah. But even when you get it, so let me give you an example. If in real time they take witness statements and they're part of that file, that risk management file, but we're four years down the road and I've got a witness in front of me now saying she doesn't remember what happened, right? I can't introduce her, her witness statement from that incident report because it's protected. No matter what she said in there that can help or hurt, inadmissible because it's part of that investigative process. And what is the logic? The logic is if hospitals, doc, if they knew that their investigation and their own root cause analysis was going to be used against them in a malpractice case, they're never going to fix the hole. And more patients in the meantime might get harmed. So there's a balance here. Now, here's how the balance works. I agree with all of it. I agree it should be completely inadmissible, except I think it should be like the whole. I think if all of a sudden nurses and witnesses start saying they don't remember, that is their statement and it's a better version of it. And I don't see why it wouldn't be used. So, I mean, if it was the truth back then when they were telling it to the risk management department, why wouldn't it be the truth now under oath that they remembered it the same today? So there's the balance that we seek but unfortunately, there that one goes to the healthcare side. The patients are at a disadvantage there. But again, you want them to do this peer review. You want them to do root cause analysis. You want them to investigate these things. And a lot of times they don't because they're even nervous now about us getting those things in discovery and that emboldening. So I agree with you. And I think it's a problem. I think that we are normalizing subpar nursing and subpar doctors and subpar systems. I think it disturbs me to hear in some of these cases where even you, it's clear as day that the standard of care wasn't adhered to, that we can't even admit or where the record keeping was completely and totally wrong and involatile of all the rules of record keeping. While we still look and say, nope, if this person came to us tomorrow, they'd be treated exactly the same way and we would have done the exact same thing. And I think in doing that, we sadly normalize a lot of subpar nursing and subpar medicine and it's concerning. I applaud the institutions that say, look, we might have to come to the table on this and resolve this case, but we understand that we could do better. Even if it's that close call, even they should be considering that a jury is gonna weigh this more likely than not. So they themselves should ask, 
more likely than not, you know, that, that gives them a lot of room for doubt. At the same time, if they are firm in their convictions that the standard of care was not breached, then they need to stand on that foundation and see if and, and, and proceed forward. That's what these doctors and nurses deserve. They deserve a defense, but they also deserve an explanation as to, look, this is about whether more likely than not, and a jury very well could find on these facts that you did not. And that needs to be considered. Yes, yes, I, yes, I, I would love to say that it always works out and that there's a, there's a change in policy after something happens. But what I find is not always, you'll see multiple things happening. Um, we met and because you had a post about unfair um, healthcare, I don't remember if it was like treatment is the right word or situations. And um, you were, you, you said that you saw them as a defense and you were interested in learning a little bit more about that. What did, what stemmed that, um, that post there? You'll have to remind me of the post. Let me pull it up real quick so I can make sure that it's the right one I'm thinking of. Okay. I'm almost certain it is. Hold on. It's making me double verify everything <laughs> sorry very good all right Let's It was this one that I said, I think we need more voices from the trenches. I make my arguments here in the court with standing adverse milk or something. Let, let me, I'm going to share my screen with you real quick. Okay. Oh, it's, it's disabled. Huh? I'd be very interested in from someone not afraid to blow the whistle. Yes, that one. That's the one. Yeah. So yeah, I wrote, so, so, okay. So yeah, so I, I remember posting and I, I was specifically dejected saying that, you know, we need more voices from the trenches, that I make my arguments here and in the courtroom, but, you know, uh, basically because I'm naturally adverse to the healthcare side of things, but I said, it always seems like a strategy play. But then you start talking to doctors, nurses, MPs, administrators, and it's just harrowing the reality in some places that there seems to be concerned the quality of care is being impacted and, and and i had forwarded an article i think out of jama that just and, th and that's exactly what it was it's another article out of jama the joint american medical which i read a lot of scholarly articles again bringing up that the profit models have wedged their way firmly into healthcare, and you know you've got you've got um You've got you've got whistleblowers that are coming out saying the same thing. You have this ultimate debate that kind of always is overarching, which is like these big healthcare systems and these big healthcare hospital systems. Is it better that they you know kind of run everything and 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 have all the the outlying practitioners and radiology? I think some hospital systems run that amazingly well. And there's a lot of congruence across the board. And it's kind of like, look, we know we're doing good healthcare in our hospital systems. Let's extend that to the communities and, 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 and take some of our resources and help some of these good doctors and nurses. I love that model. I think that's fantastic. But just like running the Roman Empire, you got to make sure you have enough guards at the gate. You can grow so big. 
that your best intentions to put safety first don't make sense. No one wants to live in an unsustainable economic model. And it's a tough, 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 tough thing to balance. I recognize it's tough to balance. Probably why I'm not involved in the political side of it. I'm involved in the, here could be the results of that. I mean, even my own observations, I've seen it go from where there was one doctor supervising two mid-levels to now one doctor supervising four to six of them or seeing just, you know, more mid-level providers, a little more autonomous, just a lot of moving around, a lot of very fast moving things that are keeping healthcare moving at the speed of light, which is something that is apparently a necessity. A necessity. You know, it's an apparent necessity that it moved this quickly to accommodate everybody. So I think you're talking about an extremely complicated puzzle, but we don't hear enough from the trenches about the real problems. I mean, I depose nurses all day long who are there defending their hospital, defending their, their colleagues, defending the way that that hospital does things, defending the way that they were trained, defending the way that they were supervised. But I often wonder if it was off the record and didn't count, if they'd be telling me the same thing. Or just like my people out here, they were asked, hey, tell me some of the bad stuff that you don't like about your job. Tell me some of the things you don't like that you see. Probably get an earful. So we don't hear enough from those voices. Maybe it's fear of retribution. Maybe it's fear of, of, of retaliation. Maybe it's not wanting to be unpopular. Maybe it's just an inherent need to, when a bad thing happens in the healthcare setting, to circle the wagons around and, and try to lock arms instead of, you know, at first realizing that, yeah, maybe this mistake was made. Um, but yeah, it's something that really weighed on me that day enough to post. And I know that, you know, we got some good response. And I think that what you're doing here is is part of the a good solution, which is encouraging a dialogue to say, there are things that happen behind the scenes that are relevant to the conversation. Yeah, I definitely, um, you know, I know that there's in my own experience, um, and I, that's what kind of why I brought this podcast to life, because I want to have these conversations, I want everything to be more normalized. Um, and in my experience, it's that nurses, some of them are afraid, I hear, you know, when they're talking to me, they're afraid to be fired. And I mean, I had an experience, my most egregious one was, they tried to get me to take care of 36 patients on my own. And I was like, you're leaving me like 12 minutes per person. What are you talking about? I can't give any care in, in that. And I refused to do it. And the agency was like, um, well, don't send her back here because we're only interested in people who want to take 36 patients. So now if that was my primary source of income, I would be, I would have been out of job. Right. Um, and then there's also these like little subtle things like you're given seven patients instead of the normal three to four and you had, you know, something wrong with your charting. Like maybe you missed a little step in your charting, which is huge. I mean, we rely on the charting and if it didn't chart, it didn't happen. I totally understand that coming from, especially this side of things, but what your manager says to you is not gosh, you know, I realized you were like so busy. You had more patients than you should have. And we apologize for that. You know, what can we do to fix this? How can we help you and acknowledge the struggle that you had? It is, why didn't you do this? Your charting isn't good enough. Do we need to send you back to class to go learn charting? And it's, you can't even bring up that you're struggling, that the workload might be too heavy. If you're by your, I was at a hospital where I was by myself with like five or six patients that required two person assists to roll in bed to protect their skin. And I'm like, there's only one of me. How am I supposed to do this by myself? Um, so there's a lot, there's a lot of nuance to it. Um, and a lot of kind of things that go on behind the scenes, um, in that. So I do appreciate you. I appreciated, um, you really recognizing it. Um, and calling it out because I really want to encourage more people to speak out because it doesn't harm us. It doesn't harm that it harms the patients. 
terms of patience. And that's what I'm interested in. No, and I, and I think that that is, you know, I think it's extremely important. I think there's never been a better time to do things like, like you're doing here, to have a platform. I think like-minded people can find other like-minded people easier than they ever have. Um, you know, it, I would love to have the time, you know, to, to and, and one day I probably will, to just kind of either start a podcast or do something that when one of my cases resolves, just to anonymize everything and just walk through it and just say what I saw that gave rise to the case and where, and, and, and who knows some doctors, some nurses out there listening, you know, I mean, I'm getting a chance to speak at AWAN, which is the, the fantastic organization that covers neonatal and obstetrical nurses. I'm giving a, a presentation at their uh, national conference down in New Orleans. And, you know, a big theme of that is please attend. So you never have to see me sitting across from you at a deposition table. You know, yeah, it's not just about, you know, the standard of care. It's also about knowing how to document, and how to chart. Some of these cases are doctor cases. Nurses did everything right. But understand, you're always going to be having a nurse consultant. Look at the case. And that nurse consultant, while they might be sharp on that physician, standard of care, they're going to absolutely be all over any nursing breaches of the standard of care. And when it comes to record keeping, they're going to look at it like they would as a nurse manager, looking at a young nurse saying, yeah, the record keeping is, is sparse here. So guess what? You didn't cover your butt. And that's part of it. And I'm okay with that. I've always <laughs> been okay with that. I've always been okay. Please let a doctor or nurse do an action in their job solely because they are afraid of being sued or in trouble. And what I mean is, I mean, pre-injury, post-injury, just be smart and document the truth of what happened. They'll set you free. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that's what the patient's entitled to in those moments, not playing fancy free with let's start circling the wagons. I mean, I've seen some harrowing stuff. It is a very small percentage, but I will tell you it is increasing. And what I mean is changes that are being made, things that are being done in records and EMRs to try to make the situation look a lot rosier than it was. Yeah, that never, that never is good, especially in the, in the world of audit trails, right? You can always see everything, um, even if they, you think you can't. Um, I wanna respect your time and we're running kind of late, but I have, I will close with this. You said in your email, and you've said it several times here that making, um, healthcare in, in the U.S., in this country, the best in the world. So it's a huge question, but what would be, what would be one thing that would make healthcare the best in the world here? You know, I really think that there is enough bright-minded people in the world that with enough focus and research in this, we can be a lot farther along than we are. And it's hard in this country to keep things and maintain them as great as they are, recognizing there's other places in the world that have a fraction of that. And I know so much effort is being put into bringing those places up to par, as difficult as it is, because these are places where there's traditionally been a lack of access to healthcare. So the people are sick and disease and suffer from all manner of things from environmental to, you know, uh, uh, you know, social things that, you know, make them less healthy than the rest of the world. But, you know, in this country, it starts with a recognition of who we are in the world and what our role is. And I don't know if our government necessarily makes the best decisions with regards to people's health and people's health care. I'm sadly fighting a law in my own state now in Tallahassee, which seeks to have a veteran, someone on Medicaid, someone on Medicare, and someone who has Blue Cross Blue Shield insurance walk into trial with the same degree of injuries, but only be allowed to tell the jury and request from a jury the amount that their current level of insurance will pay today. And there's no guarantee of what health insurance is gonna look like in the future. 
We don't know who's going to pay for the health care in the future or how it's going to be paid for. No one can give those guarantees. Okay. If anyone told you right now they can guarantee Medicare and Medicaid are going to be around in 30 years, they'll next try to sell you the Brooklyn Bridge because they can't do it. But yet they're content right now with stripping away the rights of, of Floridians in my state to bring a claim for, for the full cost of future damages by saying, nope, they need to talk in terms of what insurance would pay, even though we don't know that. I think that a lot of good comes from healthcare from these private companies. So what I believe that healthcare needs to be is an industry that is run exactly like it is with a lot of private investment and a lot of private direction and a lot of incentive to running good and quality hospitals and turning out good and quality doctors and good and quality nurses and having a claim system that makes sense. Because if I'm a hospital that operates in a state that has caps on damages and, you know, without knowing that a group of citizens in this state could hold me accountable for behavior that's not promoting the standard of care or putting profits above patient safety. If I take out my calculator and just do the calculus and say, well, that's all these cases are going to cost us versus making macro changes in what we do, you might force them into a calculus that says it's just like what they kept the bad cars on the road all those years, the Corvair, because it's cheaper to pay the claims than to recall them and to fix them. We don't want that in healthcare. We don't want it. It's just a part of it that has to be discussed, but it needs to be dealt with. We need to make sure there is this balance. I think the government is there and they need to do their job of regulating. I think it needs to be regulation. I do not think any state's Department of Health takes seriously disciplining doctors or boards of nurses and disciplining nurses. I think everyone thinks that that is such a bad black mark on a career that they're just afraid to do it. And that's not. We're in the business of trying to save lives here and help people. And that should always be the priority, no matter how uncomfortable the conversations are, no matter how the laws may be skewed towards the patient side of things. They deserve the benefit of the doubt. Because at the end of the day, in healthcare, they're the crop. They're the ones paying the bills. They're also the subject of the service, the only subject of the service. So how important is a patient in the process? They are the process. So I believe they deserve every benefit of the doubt. And uh, in the end, I think that our current system evolving the way it is, recognizing that this is a patient safety issue, I think the, the, the future is, is optimistic. But it starts with what you're doing right here, bringing recognition to the fact that there are issues in healthcare, just like any other business out there. Oh, so good. So good. Thank you for that. Yeah, we just, moral of the story, we just have to love people, right? That's it. That's all we have to do. All you need is love, as the Beatles said. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you so much for your time. Now, you're out of Florida and Morgan Morgan, I know is nationwide, but what's the best way that if somebody is listening and they have an injured loved one or perhaps um, a child with a birth injury, what's the best way that they should go about reaching you or one of your colleagues for assistance? Um, I'm very responsive on email. So, uh, you know, Jack Cook is my name, Jay Cook with no E. So it's jcook at forthepeople.com, all spelled out, F-O-R, thepeople.com. That's my email address. And I usually respond to emails within 24 hours of receiving them and try to get on the phone with people. Some people are calling us kind of in a very subacute, some even an acute scenario where, you know, the best guidance might just be keep your eyes open, keep your ears open and, you know, let's hope for the best. And so I definitely like to get to people when they call. And look, here's what I tell everyone about this. From your side of it, it's free for any lawyer to investigate this. You're not looking for answers. Don't sit there and try to look for answers to what happened. Just ask yourself, are there questions? If you have questions that need to be answered, there's talented people out there like, like, like the nurse on this podcast 
who will be more than happy to look through your records and tell you what they see. I even sometimes refer some people to hire their own nurse consultant. It's like, look, you're shopping around to lawyers. You're talking to lawyers. You don't think they're giving you the attention. Hire your own nurse consultant. Walk in there with a fact chronology and their opinions. Say, I've done your job for you. And here, this is what they say. You'd be surprised how much your case will pick up traction. I took on a case that 31 other law firms turned down and got a result on it, which means at least half of them sent them to experts. I just found an expert who saw it from a different angle. And so be persistent, be persistent. You hear it from a few people, then you can be convinced that it, it, won't, it won't work. But also don't ever be afraid to look and use your state and submit it to the State Board of Medicine and see if they themselves will investigate. Perfect. Oh man, thank you so much. And I'll have your email in the show notes so Great. that they can get to it as well. Um, thank you. Any? Did you have anything else that you wanted to to share or? No, no, that was, I think you got, we, we got through plenty on here and, and a lot of great, great stuff. So um, and I was very happy with uh, the questioning and the dialogue and everything. And, uh, you know, let's do it again sometime. You know, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll find a, a more narrowed topic we can cover, but this is good stuff. And, uh, you know, stay in touch. I, I'd like to know a little bit more about what you're doing as a consultant and everything. I do have to like bail out of here because I'm hopping on a plane in an hour. But yeah. um, um, anything for me you need? No, I think I'm good. Thank you so much. Safe travels. Thank you very much. This was very fun. I, I would love to do it again. <laughs> Thanks. Me too. Bye-bye. Hey there. This is the part of the podcast where I get to make my lawyer smile. And I get to tell you that the purpose of this podcast is for educational purposes only. I am not a lawyer and therefore not your lawyer or giving you any kind of legal advice as well as I am a nurse, but I am not your nurse, and so I am not giving you any medical advice either. Take this information as educational and consult your doctor or your legal counsel as you see fit.